Uh, hey, church. <laughs> it says my name and I come out. I mean, it's amazing. Uh, welcome to you, North Ave online community. Welcome to you as well. It's great to be here with you today. Uh, a pre-hurricane Sunday, I suppose, as we worship and gather. It's always a blessing to, to come together on these, on these Sundays to uh, yeah, just worship our God together. So thanks for being here. Thanks for tuning in. Um, Good to be with you. Now, uh, I have one more announcement I have to give before we get into today's message because uh, confession time, I didn't do what I was supposed to do and like fill out the form and say, hey, can you make this announcement of the video announcements? But you know, I get a microphone so I can, I can do what I want, I suppose. So uh, I just want to let you know, if for any of you who live, uh, who live up north, we'll say in the St. Albans area, this uh, coming Saturday, we're having an event in your area for you, a chance to gather, to uh, Spend some time with some of your Essex Alliance family in uh, St. Albans. So uh, a family, Ryan and Amanda Headley, they've graciously said, yeah, we'd love to host this, this event. We're calling it the North Region Community Meet and Greet. So if you live up that way, St. Albans, Fairfax, uh, Georgia, uh, whatever other towns are up there, I'm not too sure. But if that's you and you say, hey, I live pretty close to St. Albans, go on Church Center. You'll find it in the events page. Register for that. We'd love to spend some time with you. It's 3 to 5 p.m. this coming Saturday. Chance to eat and hang out and just uh, get to know one another a little, a little better, you know, because you're all so far away up there. So uh, let's spend some time together this Saturday. Register for that online. North Region Community Meet and Greet. That's what we're calling it. All right, enough announcements. Today is week seven of seven of this sermon series that we've been working through over the last couple months. Looking at these seven letters to seven churches in chapters two and three of the book of Revelation. So the last couple months we've been going through these letters. Today is week seven, seventh letter, seventh church. Now, uh, just to recap sort of very briefly where we've been over these seven weeks. Week one, we were in Revelation chapter two. We started there and looked at this letter from Jesus to the church at Ephesus where Jesus says to a busy church to keep first things first. Second week, we looked at the letter to the church at Smyrna. What does God have to say to a suffering church? And he says to them, look up and look forward. This week is not your final, or this world is not your final home. Uh, third week, church at Pergamum, a confused church. The risen Jesus says, stick to my word. Obedience isn't that confusing. He says that to that church. Fourth week, Church at Thyatira, this is a tolerant church. Jesus says to them, don't get too comfortable with things that you're actually supposed to be uncomfortable with. Fifth week, church at Sardis, a sleeping church. Jesus says, wake up, wake up to the sleeping church. Sixth week, you might remember if you were here last week, the church at Philadelphia, this was a powerless church. Jesus says to them, hold on, I am coming. And with his coming comes blessing and power. And now the seventh and final week of our series, we find us today in the letter to the church at Laodicea in Revelation chapter three, verses 14 through 22. So we're just going to dive in. We're going to read this letter together, and then we're going to kind of go back through and talk about it and figure out what kind of church is this and what is Jesus saying to them and what is he saying to us, you and I today. So here we go. We're just going to go to Revelation 3, starting in verse 14, where the risen Lord Jesus says these words to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, these are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. 
So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I'm rich. I've acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Man, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Uh, Now, last week, I got to step into this sermon series with a very positive, very hopeful letter from Jesus to the church at Philadelphia. Uh, That was really nice. This week, Uh, It's a little different story, what Jesus is saying to the church at Laodicea. He has quite a few negative things to say to this church. But maybe you caught this as we were reading through it. He's not giving up on them. He's giving them every opportunity to come back to him, do what's right, do what's good. And even though they've in many ways failed him to this point, he has not given up on them. And I find that really wonderful. So often, right, if someone fails us, we sort of kick him to the curb. All right, that's it. I'm done with you. I don't trust you anymore. Uh, That's not the case with Jesus. He's not like that. And we'll talk about uh, that more in a little bit. So the, the question we have before us first is, what kind of church is this church in Laodicea? What kind of church are they? How would, uh, how would we describe them? So we're going to go back right now. We're going to read verses 15 through 17 again and just sort of look a little deeper at, at what Jesus says about this church to this church. So verses 15 to 17, you'll see it on the screen once more, where Jesus says to them, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth. I do not need a thing. But you don't realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. This church at Laodicea is a self-sufficient church. Now, verse 17 here kind of reveals the core problem with this church. And these are Jesus' words. He says, you're rich. You are rich. And because they are rich, they feel like they don't need anything else. They are self-sufficient. Now, the city of Laodicea was a fairly wealthy city. In fact, it was the wealthiest city in this whole region of Phrygia, which is sort of in West Central Asia Minor. They were wealthy. And there were three major industries that were represented in the city of Laodicea. The first industry that was represented was textiles, uh, making clothes. Uh, the city, Laodicea, it's located in this very fertile valley called the Lycus Valley, and uh, it was good pasture land, good for, for raising sheep and other livestock. And through generations of careful breeding, this um, unique sheep was bred with a very soft, glossy black wool. 
And this was quite in demand, this wool, for making uh, a number of things, but especially tunics. Uh, they're called trimatia. I'm not quite sure how to pronounce that word, tunics. They were very high-fashioned, and wearing one meant that you were, you were kind of the real deal. So this was well represented in the city, these, uh, this clothes-making, textiles. Uh, and because of this commercial success, second industry was the banking industry that moved into Laodicea. It was sort of a hub for the region. Uh, the city was growing, and the banking industry came and sort of set up shop there in Laodicea, and it was well represented throughout the city. It's the second industry. The third well-represented industry in Laodicea, there was a medical school. They were famous for their medical school. Now, the city was founded... Uh, very close to this ancient temple uh, from a tribe called the Carians, and they set up this temple to a god, and it was their god of healing. So as the city was uh, starting to develop, you know, hey, god of healing, they sort of found it a nice natural place to, uh, to start like a medical school and medical center there. So it was established there in the shadow of this temple to this god of healing. Three industries, textiles, banking, and, um, and medicine. The city was rich, and the people were rich. In fact, the city was so wealthy that when an earthquake in 60 AD destroyed much of the city, the people of Laodicea refused help from the Roman government and decided, hey, we're going to pay for all the rebuilding and repairs ourselves. They rejected free money from the Roman government coming their way. They were so well off. Now, the problem with this Laodicean church is they, like their city, they are rich. Now, being wealthy in and of itself, that's not the problem, right? That's not a bad thing, but it's what wealth can do to a person that can be a problem. Jesus, he says a lot about wealth and riches throughout the Gospels, and this verse stuck out to me. From Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, and Jesus, he says, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And this Laodicean church, it seems, is sort of on that journey, if not all the way there, of serving one master and forsaking the other. And their wealth has caused them to believe that they've got it all covered. They're self-sufficient. They don't really need Jesus since they've taken care of it all. They've got everything they need. Now, there are some pretty negative words used by Jesus here in these verses. Jesus is calling them out and attempting to get them to see the reality of their situation, right? You think you're good, but, and he says, you're lukewarm in verse 16. You think you're good, but you're actually lukewarm. You think you're good, and then in verse 17, he says, but you're actually wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, naked. This church thinks they're good. They don't need anything. They don't need anything else. They're financially secure. They're able to afford what they might need. They think they're good, but they're lukewarm. They're wretched. They're pitiful, poor, blind, naked. Symptoms caused by their self-sufficient condition. Now, I just want to take a minute on this word lukewarm here because uh, it's striking in these verses. Jesus really leans into that one, this lukewarm symptom. Now, being called lukewarm, this would hit home quite vividly for the Laodiceans. He calls them this. Jesus calls them lukewarm on purpose. Not just because it hurts, but because, again, it would be vivid to them. The city of Laodicea, we're going to talk more about the city here. It lies between two very interesting water features in the region. 
Six miles to the north, across the Lycus Valley, there is a city called Hierapolis. Now, Hierapolis is famous because of its hot springs. It has these hot springs that, uh, that flow across this sort of wide plateau and then spill over the edge of this steep slope. And as they go, it deposits minerals like calcium carbonate and bacteria, and uh, it creates this multi-tiered, lots of pools, lots of levels, big and white, as it cascades over the side of this, of this plateau cliff. And the minerals and bacteria get deposited as, it's, as it goes. Um, now, hot springs are often thought, and still are today, to have a sort of medicinal quality to them. They're useful. They're useful. But the water is not suitable for drinking. And this feature is visible from Laodicea across the valley to Hierapolis. A uh, week and a half ago, my family and I, we returned from a, uh, I'll say a nine-day vacation out west, where we spent a week at Yellowstone National Park. Now, we were uh, staying in Montana, right outside the north entrance of the park in Gardner, Montana. And, uh, I mean, where we were in Yellowstone, I don't know if you've ever been out there before, but where we were is very mountainous, lots of mountains. We were down in Montana, and to get in the park, you have to drive up uh, through the mountains a little bit. And uh, about 15 minutes in to the park from where we were is Mammoth Hot Spring. Mammoth Hot Spring. Now, maybe if you've been out there and you've seen this before, you know, you know what's up. Mammoth Hot Spring. And uh, this is huge, this huge feature in the park. Now, if you're coming from the north like we were, if you're coming from the south as well, you don't really notice Mammoth Hot Springs till you're right there in it because of the mountains and the trees and the hills and everything's in the way as you're driving there. And you don't really see it until you're right there and you kind of get a feeling, oh, this is, this is huge. It's called Mammoth for a reason. But uh, you don't notice it until you're there. You don't get the full picture. So uh, I think it was our second or third day that we were there at Yellowstone, our, our family unit. We said, hey, we're going to drive out uh, east a little bit. We're going to go to a place called the Lamar Valley. That's where there's a lot of bison. So we went and did the bison thing, you know, and that was really sweet. And then on our way back, we're driving back towards home, back towards Mammoth. And uh, we were, I remember we were coming sort of on a winding road and we were coming around this bend in the road and the hill kind of peeled away. And there, a few miles away in the distance was the, the hillside and boom, Mammoth Hot Springs just sticking out like a sore thumb on the side of this mountain. It's big, it's white and copper, multicolored, multi-tiered. I mean, just taking up this huge portion of this mountain. It's sort of epic view standing out because of its color and how different it is from the surrounding trees and, and grass and everything. And still several miles away at a distance, we could see it clearly. Quite imposing. Quite imposing from where we were. Now, I've never seen the Hierapolis hot springs in person. I've been looking at pictures and stuff. And I can imagine living in view of this big, impressive, imposing geological feature, right? In a way, things like that, they become part of your life. Think about the mountains here, maybe across the lake or the green mountains here. You see them every day. They're in the distance. They stick out. It's there and you know it. <coughs> and in Laodicea, you can see these hot springs but you're not, you're not at them, right? Your city doesn't have the hot springs. They're looming, they're ever-present, but they're still miles away. That's the first water feature. About 10 miles to the south, southeast, lies the city of Colossae. Colossae, letter of Colossians in the New Testament was written to the church in that city. Now, the city of Colossae was established on a water supply that year-round brought suitable, fresh, clear, clean, cold drinking water to the city. 
And that's only a few miles away from Laodicea. That city was founded on a water supply. Laodicea is quite literally caught in the middle between hot and cold. The city of Laodicea itself wasn't established on a, because of a water supply or water source. It was established because of trade routes. And in fact, the water supply in the city itself was quite poor. It literally was lukewarm. It was tepid. It had a bad taste. And as several scholars pointed out, there are many accounts of it inducing vomiting when you would drink it. It was, uh, it was bad. <laughs> One scholar I was reading said the water at Laodicea was useless. So the city had to build sizable aqueducts to bring in water from, from another supply a few miles away. Quite literally, the city's caught in the middle between hot and cold. And Jesus is calling this church lukewarm on purpose. And you, you can sort of understand why. Not hot, not cold, lukewarm. They are useless, just like the water found in their city. Jesus says, I wish you were hot. I wish you were cold. Both of those things have a benefit. But what you are, lukewarm, it's useless. And that one should hurt. That should hurt this church. I think there's two dimensions to this lukewarmness of the church in Laodicea. There's an internal and an external dimension to their lukewarmness. Internally, we'll call this sort of their spiritual inner life, their relationship with Jesus. Jesus says to this church, right, you think you've got it all covered. You say you're rich. You say you don't need anything. They think they don't need me, Jesus says. And what kind of relationship does that attitude create when it's coming from one of the parties in the relationship? (laughs) A distant, lukewarm relationship, right? And no one wants that kind of relationship with anyone, a friend, a spouse, even a coworker or a boss. You don't want that kind of relationship. A lukewarm relationship keeps you saying things like, I'm not quite sure where I stand with this person. I don't know what I did wrong. They're not returning my calls or texts, right? I don't know what they want. Sort of a useless relationship. And that's not what Jesus wants from his church. He loves his church. He wants to be close to them. And when we believe that we're all good or self-sufficient, we have everything we need, including we don't need you, Jesus. I got it all covered. That creates distance. Self-sufficient faith is, it's really no faith. It says you don't need God. You don't need to worship. You don't need to pray. You don't need to engage your mind or imagination, right? I'm all good. I got it covered. It's all good. It's useless. There's also an external dimension to this church's lukewarmness. And I would say to any church's lukewarmness, lukewarm is an indifference, an indifference to your neighbor. Right? You're not bad to them. You're not mean. You're not oppressing them. But you're not good either. You're not helpful. You don't invite them in or get to know them, right? Sort of useless. Useless in your community. Useless to the very people Jesus has called to serve and love. And Jesus' right assessment of the Laodicean church, it's not just that internal spiritual dimension, it's an external indifference to the hurts and the joys of their neighbors. Right, the more money you have, the more privacy you can afford, right? You can buy land, you can put up a wall, you can put up a fence. And, and again, these things themselves, they are not bad, but 
Those physical fences can become sort of spiritual fences. They keep us separate and indifferent and, and blind to the people around us, the, the people Jesus has called us to. And I think that's what's happened to this church. They're self-sufficient, and they've lost their vision for their neighbor, right? I'm all set. I've acquired enough. I don't need anything. Well, maybe your neighbor does. Maybe, uh, maybe they could use some help. Maybe they're suffering or hungry or simply just need someone to get to know them and let them know that they matter. Does this church look more like the apostles in the book of Acts as they are selling possessions and, and providing food and clothing and trusting that God will take care of them as they bring the gospel around the world? Or do they look more like their Roman lords who are very self-interested and turn a blind eye to suffering and take advantage of an imbalanced system of wealth and power? Well, the way Jesus talks about them here in this letter, I'd say they look more like the Romans than the apostles. And church, we should be challenged by this. It should be a challenge to us. We've got it pretty good, relatively speaking. We've got it pretty good here in America, and especially in our state, right? We aren't subject in the same way to the tragedies and suffering a lot of people around the world are subject to. And yes, we have our own stuff going on here we have to deal with as well, right? There's a lot going on here too. I mean, this week we saw two pretty massive incidents come across our news screens or our computers of continued suffering in the world, right? We had the earthquake in Haiti this past week, followed by the hurricane where you got thousands of people who are dead or displaced from their homes. Yet again, another tragedy striking that nation and those people. And we've seen this unfolding, the beginning of this situation in Afghanistan, right? And we're not getting into any political discussion on this, but other than just saying people are fleeing for their lives and dying trying to escape the country because of the suffering that they're facing and what, what they know is coming. And um, I have to admit, I keep an eye on these stories and I, I sit there on my couch and I go, oh my gosh, that's awful. Thank, thank God that's not me. That's lukewarm. That's lukewarm. And it's to this attitude that Jesus says, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. And in fact, that word spit he uses really means to vomit. Jesus says, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. I don't want to be vomited out of Jesus' mouth. I don't want that. I, we all should be moved in the very core of our being to give ourselves away for the sake of our suffering neighbor because the Lord gave himself away for us. If we worship Jesus, if I do, if you do, we are subject to him, his commands and his character, which means if we're living truthfully with him and for him, we, we can't be lukewarm. Internally, yes, recognizing, Jesus, you're what I need, you, you're it, leading to honest worship and a genuine spiritual life and relationship with him, but also externally, generously and joyfully helping our neighbor, whatever that might look like. Something big or something small in between. And this lukewarm symptom is the result of the church's self-sufficient attitude. Their reliance on themselves and their wealth, their focus on their comfort, it's created distance between this church, it's created distance between them and Jesus, it's created distance between them and their neighbor, and distance between them and their mission. And to this, Jesus says in verse 18 these words, I counsel you 
to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. After he exposes here the truth of the church's self-sufficiency, Jesus says to the self-sufficient church, I have what you really need. I have what you really need. I counsel you, he says. He says, here's my advice, church. I have what you really need, so come and get it from me. Buy from me gold refined in fire. Buy from me white robes, clothing, and uh, eye ointment, the salve for your eyes to heal your sight. And Jesus, right now, he's, he's sort of hitting them where it hurts again, right in their, in their wallets, right? The Laodiceans' wealth came from banking, gold refined in fire. From the textile industry, white robes. You're naked, you need white robes. And the medical school, the ointment for their eyes. You're, he says your gold isn't enough. It's never going to be enough. It doesn't have lasting worth, only what Jesus provides for them. Gold refined with fire, only that can last. The image of refining something with fire throughout the New Testament is used to refer to uh, spiritual maturity and moral purity. And this can only be purchased from Jesus himself because it was first purchased by Jesus for you on the cross. Jesus says to this church, stop focusing on that gold and on those pockets. Start focusing on your souls and your, your maturity, your holiness. The tunics desired and worn by the elite Laodiceans. That's no reason for boasting, Jesus points out. In fact, your nice clothes, it actually exposes your shameful nakedness. In the Bible, nakedness is used often as a symbol of judgment or humiliation, while receiving clothing is used as a symbol of honor. You know, I think back to the later chapters of Genesis where Joseph is given a, a cloak, a coat by his father Jacob, sort of showing his honor and his place among his brothers as, as the favorite. Their fine clothing actually exposes the fact that they currently stand in a place of judgment before God. Naked, exposed, and shameful. Jesus says, buy from me white robes, a symbol. These white robes are a symbol of righteousness that we receive when we rely on Jesus for our eternity and for our present. Only Jesus can make you righteous. Only he can clothe you in white robes. In the medical school here at Laodicea, they were famous for producing this powder that would be mixed into a paste and used as an eye ointment. And they would export that all around the region. The salve for their eyes that Jesus talks about is a cure for their spiritual blindness. Here's Jesus in John 9, 39. He says, For judgment I have come into this world, so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. His indictment of this church is quite contrary to their assessment of themselves. Their self-sufficiency has made them blind to the truth that they, in fact, don't have it all taken care of. It actually looks like they don't, they don't have anything taken care of. Because they can't. They're not the ones who can take care of what really matters. In all Jesus' harsh words here throughout this letter, he's trying to get them to see the truth and heal their sight so they can see the truth about themselves so they can actually start living 
the way they might think that they're, that they're living, with him and for him, right? All their gold, all their nice clothes, all their medicine, none of it can take care of their greatest problem, sin and death. The self-sufficient church and the self-sufficient Christian says, I've purchased my seat in heaven. I've done what I have to do. I've earned my status. I, I don't need healing. I've got it all covered. I got it under control. And to that, Jesus says, no, you don't. You don't. You can't. Only he can. He has what we need to enter eternity, to experience true life right now, and to be deemed righteous. Only he can do that. And he wants to do that for them. And he wants to do that for you and for me. And even though they've been living in this self-sufficient mode and it seems that they've lost their vision, created distance between them and Jesus, he hasn't given up on them. It's not too late. And that's why he says to them, buy from me these things. And then we go to verse 19 and 20 where he says this to them. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Those whom I love, I rebuke. <laughs> he must really love this church. Um, confession time with Pastor Matt. Okay, here we go. Confession time. Let me spill my guts to you. Uh, I felt the Lord call me to ministry very profoundly when I was uh, 19 years old. I was 19. When I was 22, 23 years old, I had uh, finished my undergraduate degree in biblical and theological studies, and I was the up-and-coming young pastor in training at my home church, church of a few thousand people. And uh, there was about two years there. I say two years, maybe that's being generous, but there was a couple of years where I was just like straight up arrogant, straight up. I knew every answer, I was teaching, I was preaching every now and then, I was leading groups, I was leading ministries with people much older than myself serving under my guidance and leadership, I was given responsibility, probably beyond what I should have been given at that time. Uh, it was like being given the keys to a Ferrari, right, but I don't know how to drive stick. All I know how to do is sit in the driver's seat with my shades on, you know? I didn't know it at the time. All I knew was, I'm <laughs> pretty awesome. And I developed this arrogance. In fact, I remember our church hosting this big uh, national conference with very high-profile pastors and, and business and government leaders and guys like Andy Stanley or Colin Powell, Jack Welch. Probably know some of those names. And I remember walking out of a couple of the sessions because I thought I knew what they were talking about already. And I couldn't see that I was actually leading people astray, pushing them away at the time. And one of my responsibilities at the time was uh, leading a Bible study for college students over the summer months. And first week we had like 15 to 20. By the last week there was like four of us. And reflecting back on it now, I know and I can see clearly that I was more interested in, uh, in looking good, right, and impressing people, sort of propping myself up, than I was in showing people Jesus and, and being like him. 
So I'm in that mode. I'm, I'm arrogant. That's how I viewed myself. And, and honestly, I was pretty indifferent to, to a lot of things, a lot of people in our church. And uh, one of the pastors, who I love dearly, him and I are very close still, he sat me down one day with pain in his eyes and a sternness in his voice and told me just how disappointed he was in me. And he called it all out. And until that point, I couldn't see the truth. I thought I was crushing it because I felt good. I looked good. It was getting lots of compliments on things. And turns out what I was doing was pushing people away. My arrogance blinded me to the truth about myself. <laughs> I hope I don't do this anymore, but my sermons at the time were a lot like, hey, church, you're wrong about this. Let me tell you why I'm right. If I do that now, I'm sorry. <laughs> but he called me out. Help me to see the truth. And today, now well over a decade later, I thank God for that conversation because Jesus used it to open my eyes to the truth and heal my sight, to help me see what I was really like and what I was really doing. And I'm a very different person, a very different uh, pastor and preacher and leader and husband. And all the, I'm very different because of that conversation. So thank you, Jesus, for knocking. Thank you for the rebuke. Thank you for helping me see. Now, for the Laodiceans, their self-sufficiency came because of their wealth, secure and stable. Why would they need Jesus for anything when they are wanting for nothing? Their comfort created distance and made them useless. For me, my self-sufficiency came because of my abilities, my gifts, my arrogance in that, to look good, to sound good, and to impress people. That created arrogance in me. Why do I need Jesus when I can look good on my own? So what might it be for you? Where does your self-sufficiency come from? Maybe from your strength. You can shoulder those burdens alone. You got broad shoulders. You don't need Jesus' help. Or maybe from your charisma. People like you. Jesus, why do I need Jesus? I got all these friends. My cup is relationally full. Or maybe it comes from your work. You perform well. You achieve well. I don't need you, Jesus. Look at everything I've done on my own. Where's your self-sufficiency come from? Abundance and whatever it is, whether it's in your pockets or in your gifts or in your strength, abundance can lead to a sense of security and, and security can lead to self-sufficiency and self-sufficiency can lead to believing I don't need Jesus. And Jesus says to the self-sufficient church and to the self-sufficient Christian, I have what you really need. And it's not too late. He hasn't given up on you. He didn't give up on me. He loves those he rebukes. He's knocking. And he wants you to open the door and to see the truth and to start to live with him and for him, invite him in. He's knocking and he's going to continue to knock. He loves you. And it's not too late to open that door. It's not too late to see the truth. It's not too late to repent, as he says, to change course and to have your sight healed. Worshiping him, right? Recognizing he is what we need for joy, for security, for eternity. And then coming to him continually out of gratitude for what he's given you. And to generously serve our neighbor. To live on mission. 
to love our neighbors well, to help, to heal, and to provide for those maybe we've kept outside of those walls that we built. He stands at the door and knocks. Will you let him in? What he has for you is of infinite worth. Jesus has what we really need, and that's himself. Let's finish up our passage and finish up our series with verses 21 and 22. Where Jesus continues to say to this self-sufficient church that he hasn't given up on, he's knocking on the door, and he finishes with a promise. Here's verse 21 and 22. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. These words are really what the whole book of Revelation is all about. Words of promise to the church, to all churches, to all Christians, in all places throughout all time. To the one who is victorious. That's the one who, despite all pressure, despite all persecution, despite every trial or hardship, The one who is victorious remains faithful to Jesus through it all. Jesus says to that person, to you, as you cling to him and whatever's going on in your life, whatever hardship or trial, he says good things are coming, even if it doesn't look like it now. At the end of each of these seven letters to these seven churches, In chapters 2 and 3 in Revelation, all the letters we've talked about over the last seven weeks, at the end of each of them, a promise is made to the one who is victorious. One who holds on. And this is the refrain that gives meaning to the whole book of Revelation and hope for everyone who would follow Jesus. These promises. To the church at Ephesus, Jesus promises. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. Adam failed. He didn't get to eat from that tree. We can be victorious and succeed where he couldn't. To Smyrna, Jesus promises, the one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. To Pergamum, Jesus promises, the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna And he will give that person a white stone with a new name written on it. To Thyatira, to the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, he says, I will give authority over the nations who rule alongside of him. To Sardis, the one who is victorious will be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life and will acknowledge him before my father and his angels. To Philadelphia, Jesus promises, the one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. And here to Laodicea, the one who is victorious, to the one who holds on, who never gives up, who clings to faith, who follows him faithfully, no matter what, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. What? Get to sit on his throne. 
And as the rest of the book of Revelation goes on, chaos unfolds. God's judgment comes upon the wicked. Satan tries to rally his forces. People are deceived. They fight against each other. They fight against Jesus himself. There's suffering on all sides. Bad things happen. Hard things happen. But in the end of this book of Revelation, there is a renewed heaven and a renewed earth. Sin and death and Satan are defeated forever. A new city comes and rests upon the earth with God on his throne and his people living in his presence forever. And these promises to the churches here in chapters two and three point us to that end. And they will always point us to that end. Hold on. If you are victorious over sin and temptation and trial, you hold on to Jesus, you will live forever with him in this city. The new Jerusalem where he says there is no death, nor crying, nor pain anymore. He will wipe every tear from every eye. These promises are for you, church. They're for you. Because life has a way of throwing the worst at you. And sometimes it throws the best at you. Make no mistake, Satan would love nothing more than to make sure you are not victorious through discouragement or through abundance, he will try and turn you from Jesus. Don't let him. Hold on. Good, bad, or whatever, Jesus has and is what we really need. And his promises are good. So I'll say it again, church, wherever you're at, whether you're feeling disengaged, disconnected, whether it's your first time here, whether you have that sense of self-sufficiency. It's not too late to open the door. He knocks. And he's knocking because he wants you to be victorious. He wants you in that city with him forever. He wants you. And he's not going to give up on you. And if we're going to be victorious, all of us, me, you, everyone, we need to see the truth about who we are, have our sight healed by him, about who we are, about who he is, and what we need to do as we live faithfully on mission until that day when he comes again. So church, I'll say, hold on no matter what. Hold on to Jesus. And I promise you will see these promises come true. Would you stand and pray as we close? So Lord, I, uh, I feel the need to continually confess to you that I am so wretched and poor and blind and pitiful and naked. Before you, Lord, I can't help but see those things about myself. And that could feel like bad news, but no, Lord, you said, hey, I've got white robes for you. I've got gold refined with fire. I've got the cure for your blindness. So Lord, give that to me. Give that to us. Help us walk with a renewed sense of purpose and your presence and joy. Help us to see our neighbor and to not be lukewarm. Help us to see you and not be lukewarm. 
And most of all, Lord, help us to never think that we can get through this life and get into eternity without you doing it for us. You stand at the door and knock, and you always do. Lord, we open the door today and say, come in. And as we go from this place, stay with us. Help us. And we glorify you with wherever we are and whatever we do. Take a moment now to pray, Lord. As for the tragedies we've seen unfold in the world this week, I'm, I'm just reminded of the devastation and the hurt and the fear and the violence taking place in Afghanistan and in Haiti. We pray for those nations. We pray for those people. Lord, would you intervene, bring peace, bring healing, send your church to help and to help in your name. See lives repaired, see repentance, and see hope because of you. We ask that, Lord, that you would do that in a mighty way. And we end just by saying we love you and we thank you for this day. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, church, great to see you again today. God bless you as you go. Amen.